Welcome to the Cannabis Equipment News Podcast. Hi, I'm David Manti, and welcome to a new episode of the Cannabis Equipment News Podcast. With me today is Thomas Wynn Stanley, VP of Marketing at Theory Wellness. Thank you very much for joining me today. David, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. All right. Before we get started, please make sure to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. You could also help us out a lot by leaving the podcast a positive review on whatever platform you use. Finally, if you want to reach the podcast, you can reach me at david at cannabisequipmentnews.com. All right, Thomas, let's jump into it. How did you get started in the cannabis industry? Boy, that's a great question. Um, my background is in marketing and advertising. Um, I came up through the ad agency world in New York City. During that time, I worked on consumer packaged goods. I worked in pharmaceuticals and then ultimately into spirits. And that became a really great primer for me in terms of understanding different marketing challenges, different operational challenges. Um, and my wife and I decided to move out of New York City um, in go out west to Laramie, Wyoming, where she was getting a master's. At that time, always had been a cannabis enthusiast. However, going down and spending a lot of time in Colorado, seeing the legal market was of huge interest to me as somebody who'd been an enthusiast. I think like a lot of people, I had that moment of, I can't believe this is now legal. I can go into a store, I can browse products and I can purchase. So ultimately when we moved back to the East Coast, um, I signed up with Theory in July of 2018. And from there, really, I was looking to get into the industry. We were medical at the time. And I really wanted to go to a company that was private, that was small, independent, and really cutting its teeth. And, you know, the rest is really history. Um, I had a great meeting with them the first time. And the, the first interview that I had with them was, was, was really interesting. And I realized kind of walking out of that, that this was something that was very much within kind of what I wanted to be doing. And haven't really looked back. Four years seems like almost a very shortened period of time, as most cannabis pe- folks will say. Um, but it's been an incredible ride and something I always have always been passionate about cannabis. So it was a very natural alignment and leveraged a lot of my past background. How has theory evolved over the last four years? Boy, we have evolved quite a bit. So when I joined back in 2018, we had two stores. We were medical only. Um, and really, as recreational cannabis started to come into the, the view on the East Coast, we always knew that that was part of our future, but we didn't know the extent at which it would be um, really how it would really translate into our operations. And so when we first switched over for recreational sales, our Great Barrington store was, uh, which is in Western Massachusetts, it was existing medical already. But when we had that recreational license at the time, we were the sixth recreational dispensary uh, on the East coast and in Massachusetts, and we were the closest to New York city. And Mm -hmm. so we had access to one of the largest demographics in the country, one of the largest DMAs in the country. And we overnight changed with adult use sales. Um, We've kind of been playing catch up ever since to some extent. And we really took this kind of new evolution into our operations, everything from production management, retail, marketing, I mean, customer service across the board. And, you know, in the last kind of couple of years, we've since, you know, in Massachusetts, we added another recreational store in Chicopee, another medical store uh, that was also co-located in Chicopee. And then we also joined the the main market, the main adult use market too, um, in October of 2020. And we currently have three stores there. So in four years, we went from 
two med stores to now six stores, um, three medical and mass, two rec and mass, and then three rec stores up in Maine. And we're going to continue to grow. Um, mm -hmm. And so you can imagine during those four years, we've seen so many different shifts within the industry. And we've been very fortunate to kind of ride the wave that we have, maintaining still being a privately owned independent operator. We're almost, it's almost, a, uh, it's interesting to think about that we are a independently owned and operated MSO, which is something that you don't really hear a lot about in the industry. Are you, uh, are you vertically integrated? Yeah, in both states, we are vertically integrated. So we control the supply chain for ourselves from seed to sale. And that's honestly contributes to part of the nimbleness that we've had as an operation where we can move very quickly and respond to market needs and develop products, um, you know, that really meet our customers. And so having this holistic view from the top down of our operations is, is quite a unique position, I think, to be in a lot of these markets. When you changed overnight, what was that like internally? I mean, I mean, uh, it's a great problem to have, but all of a sudden you have to scale everything. How did you go about doing that? Right. It was, it really was an overnight sensation where we were, I remember having meetings days before adult use began saying, is anybody going to show up for this? Mm -hmm. Is, are people going to come? Uh, is this going to happen? And as a marketer, I mean, you kind of have that in the back of your mind of, well, what if we do all this work and just nobody comes? And that's kind of the mentality we have where we're always cautiously optimistic about our expectations. And once we saw the folks who were coming to us, we were very calm, cool, and collected. We started to look at operational workflows. We were looking at all the data that was coming in. And what we've been really successful with in our operations are trying to use that data to improve. And so we were looking at everything from our website server sizes to can our website handle, you know, a thousand people hitting it a day or 2000 or 4,000 or 10,000. We were looking at our transaction times and seeing where there are operational efficiencies. We were looking at our production challenges of turning over batches and making sure we didn't sell out of products. We were looking at, um, you know, the, the physical space of our retail store and how can we mitigate lines. I mean, and we, we basically kind of, each of the leaders within each of the verticals from retail to manufacturing to myself and marketing to customer service, we all kind of just looked at all these columns of, of uh, opportunities for improvement. And we started to kind of fine tune our systems. And, and truthfully, that mentality has kind of stayed with us in a lot of ways as we went through COVID, as we started to navigate, you know, regulatory changes, supply side changes, packaging changes. And what has always been really beneficial for us is our, we have very open communication styles. Everything from our frontline cannabis consultants who are saying, hey, you know what, this way of scanning products isn't super great for us. Is there a better way that we can, can we, can we make an easier workflow for us to run a transaction? Um, or all the way forward to, uh, you know, myself and saying, okay, well, our website, the way that we're laying out this information on the website, I think is kind of unclear. And then most importantly, David, is we listen to our customers. We are always soliciting feedback where 
we can assume all we want about how a process is going for a consumer. But if you ask a consumer, they will tell you where you have gaps, both where you have gaps and also where you're succeeding. And when we kind of flipped that switch overnight for REC, we realized that we were very much at the mercy of our consumers of how can we make a better experience? And to be very frank, we felt a lot of responsibility as a new cannabis company to provide a level of experience where many first time customers were coming to a dispensary and who had no expectations. Mm -hmm. And you have one, one opportunity to basically introduce yourselves and make a good impression. And we have worked tirelessly to ensure that that first customer's visit to a dispensary was not only memorable, but also when they went home, that the products met them at the expectations we had as, you know, a new cannabis company and just really set that, that hook deep for consumers. What are some of the changes that you made as a result of listening to customer feedback? Oh, man. So many things. We went through multiple different pre-order systems when pre-order started to become something. I mean, actually, originally, there was no pre-order. Um, and we heard that folks, we actually had this, you know, it was a good and a bad problem. We had a lot of lines. One of the first things that we dealt with was we had so many folks who were showing up at a time that we would, no joke, have waits. And people would ask us nonstop, how long is the wait? And so we did things like started posting on Twitter what our wait times were. Our Twitter feed became a very active area around setting expectations. Um, we had to do a, we had to learn a lot of, kind of on the fly optimization of menu and inventory where our sell-through rates were so high at a certain time that we had to really manage an inventory to, to be able to turn on the fly and say, okay, well, we have X amount of this flower, X amount of this, X amount of this. Let's make sure we're, you know, setting limits where we needed to. And we had limits early on because with the amount of demand we saw, we wanted to make sure that we never had to shut down or anything like that. And so we were looking at limits. We were doing a lot of mathematical calculations on burn through and sell through rates on certain products. We were taking in a lot of feedback on the types of products we had. Um, and then, you know, I mean, a lot of the pre-order that came with line mitigation, that became something that we were really trying to understand. And things even as, you know, things even like, um, making sure that our transaction times, that we were understanding transaction times because there's this very narrow window where you are not pushing people through because people are buying for the first time. We wanted to have really good educational conversations. Mm -hmm. And we wanted to make sure that we were speeding up transactions because we were looking at transaction times. We're like, these are really long. I mean, and we did things like, as people were waiting in line, we actually brought on cannabis consultants who would, go and spend time in the line with consumers answering questions. So when they did come to the point of transaction, they actually knew what they were looking for. And David, I even did that <laughs> as like a, as a marketing guy, because I knew these products, I was writing descriptions and helping position them. And so that ultimately increased our speed of um, getting transactions through because if somebody's waiting in line, help them have the conversations. And so, you know, we, we really just took every little data point we could find to help optimize what a flow through our, our store would be. And mm -hmm. ultimately, that was a really, really good thing. And I mean, and we still do this today. Did you ever run into inventory issues or 
just because I, or did you foresee that kind of explosion? So that way you sort of had the inventory ready once demand ramped up. Um, How did you, how how did you deal with it then? And how do you continue to deal with it today? Yeah. So, I mean, inventory is always one of those things that ebbs and flows. So early on, I think actually when we were going into rec, we were, we were always very conscious of, you know, best case scenario, we have so much demand that we need more inventory and making sure we had wholesale relationships all the way to, you know, making sure that we were balancing wholesale products versus theory products. And ultimately, you know, we had so much flour at certain times, we started to really look at, okay, we actually had a menu meeting every day at five Mm o'clock. And what we would do is we would go through and we'd say, okay, what is the current burn rate on inventory today? Okay, so if we're going to probably sell out of this, what's going to follow up in its place? And then let's make sure we know what we have here. And we would have legitimate strategy sessions every day until we understood what the cycle would be to facilitate getting those products on the menu, making sure we never had gaps in our menus, and then looking at the wholesale market and saying, okay, well, we're probably, we could run through X and Y products. Are there wholesalers who are providing those products that we can supplement with? And if so, how can we get them in? And really that whole ecosystem was something that we created so many SOPs during that time. And every, you know, and, and, and that process continued to evolve too, because we then started to do overnight orders, which was another massive change where we had somebody who was on staff for 24 hours. We had 24 hour open, basically 24 hours with pre-ordering, managing that inventory, thinking about buying cycles of what days were the biggest days, how did we have to make sure we were ready for those buying cycles. And so inventory management has always been a very large part of kind of creating the experience we want. And then on top of that, you're also looking at how do we make a menu that's really diverse, that has sativas, indicas, and hybrids. And, you know, and so that whole equilibrium was something that we were really fortunate to make it through at the time uh, because it was all still new to us. And, you know, we would have times when we would be sitting around in the dispensary at, you know, one in the morning saying, Mm -hmm. okay, well, okay. So we just closed today's transaction. So now let's get the menus updated for tomorrow. And then what is that going to look like? And, you know, and ultimately that was something where it was very collaborative and it was also fun. You know, we were all in it and we were all kind of, there was that added excitement of doing something so new that it was never, it never felt like a job when you stayed, you know, till three in the morning and worked a, you know, 18 hour day or something like that. Those are some of the glory days, if you will. I completely agree. The passion with when it's a startup in that sense of community, we're all in this together. I completely agree, especially when you're working with people whose company you enjoy. Um, it's just fun. And you almost feel guilty that you're also getting paid to do it. But, <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, and, and honestly, David, we have, we we are we we think of ourselves a lot like a startup. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we you know this is the kind of the fun thing. I mean, I was the director of marketing at the time, and you know, I was a one man show. I was taking the photos of all the products. I was writing the copy. I was building the emails. I was coding the back end of the website. And then I would be going into the store and saying, okay, well, you know, our internet is too slow. Let's go drill a hole in this wall and run ethernet cables and let's run splitters. And, you know, and then I would go and get into line and talk to consumers. And we were all kind of, we weren't understaffed per se, but we all played very roles that were well beyond where we needed to be. And, you know, 
I even went and packed pre-orders on mm-hmm. nights. Um, and that's just the way you do it. You know, you want to be successful and you want to succeed. And even, you know, I got to give it up to our CEO, Brandon Pollock. There was a day where our water cooler broke. Mm. I mean, he literally came in and noticed it was broken. He took the panel off of it, <laughs> you know, and he, he got down on his hands and knees and he fixed it and was like, oh, you know, there was a wire that was disconnected here. And, you know, and we all kind of share that startup mentality where, yeah, we can fly at 10,000 feet and we can run the strategy, but we can also get our hands dirty and get our hands into the dirt and figure out problems and untangle, you know, issues. And that's, we've, we've carried that even though we're much bigger, but we still, all of us have that same mentality. You'd mentioned uh, your bigger days and slower days. What are your biggest days of the week? So like a lot of standard retail, Thursday, Friday, Saturday are our biggest days. Um, Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you have occasional Mondays on holidays can be really, really large. Um, One of our biggest days in history was the day we reopened for adult use sales after COVID had us shut down. Mm -hmm. Um, It was Memorial Day. And, you know, that was another crazy cycle of we had a lot. There was a lot of pent up demand. Um, We were not deemed a... a mandatory business in the state. Uh, it was really, really tough on our operations. And when the state said you, cannabis can reopen again, um, as a, we were an essential business. So when they said we could reopen, the night that we reopened, we had something like 4,000 people on our website waiting for us to turn on ordering. And, wow. you know, and then it was kind of like the biggest Monday we've ever had in history was, you know, randomly on Memorial Day. Um, so, but for the most part, it's a traditional retail business model. Um, Fridays, you know, Thursday, Friday, Saturdays are our biggest days. And Sundays, there are some sleeper Sundays that come out of nowhere where all of a sudden we get a really, really big day too, but pretty traditional, I would say. How long were you shut down for COVID? We were shut down for two months. Oh. And that was a, we had actually just opened our Chicopee dispensary. Chicopee had been open for adult use sales for about five weeks. We opened on the leap year, ironically enough, in Chicopee. And it was it was some of the hardest times we we had to face as a, as a company. Um, we had a lot of expectations. We were waiting for that store to open for a long time. And to have it get shut down... Um, as a non-essential business was difficult medical continued, but we didn't have a medical license at that time. So it was certainly, it was challenging for us, but it was also challenging for every other human on the planet too. So um, we fought hard to come back strong in a lot of ways we did. Um, But again, that was a huge repivot of our operations um, to come back into COVID. And again, the landscape was totally different. So as the VP of marketing, are you doing more of the e-commerce side of the business or are you doing more traditional advertising? Is it a combination of the two? Yeah. So as my role actually is, is fairly diverse, I think, for you know, a traditional marketing role. So I, my kind of reign goes everything from our current website to our retail interior design and layouts to product development and brand positioning um, as well as our, uh, you know, our website, which is our our biggest driver. Um, So 
a lot of our business has actually COVID was one of the largest catalysts to drive online pre-orders. And I've been really fortunate to have a very close relationship with the founders of Dutchie, uh, Zach and Ross uh, Lipson, who they actually, we were before COVID, we were the largest cannabis company on their platform. We, our great Barrington store had the highest transaction, the highest number of transactions in the country of all on their leaderboard with the largest cart size on their leaderboard. Um, and we're generating more revenue on their leaderboard than anybody else. And so they, they've they always kind of worked with us. And as part of we've scaled our commerce offerings through our website, they've actually been a really good partner in helping facilitate that growth and supporting that trajectory. Um, and that's been really fun for us. And as a marketer, it's interesting because we do not have the traditional channels that most marketers would have in their toolkit from AdWords to social, which I'm sure you've, you've are very familiar with. And so we've been, we've kind of, we've been rewriting our, our marketing playbooks and a lot of my past experience didn't really prepare for the industry that we have today, um, which changes by the minute, but commerce continues to be a very interesting focal point of marketing right now. And, we're actively exploring what does the future of cannabis commerce start to look like? Um, and that's a big, that's a big arena to play in. So what does the future of cannabis look like? Wow. It depends on how far into the future you want to look. I think the inevitability is that it's going to be like Amazon mm-hmm. and it may just be Amazon. But I also think in the meantime, there are a lot of, changes and in, in progressive steps that will get closer to the Shopify universe of, of what cannabis commerce looks like. I would say fundamentally the largest implication is going to be federal legalization, depending on when that starts to come into effect. You know, ironically enough, the Morehouse Act was passed a little while ago, which was <clears throat> right, which was good, uh, which is a start. Um, but it's probably not going to make it through the Senate. Mm-hmm. But you know, someday some bill is going to go through and that's going to change the entire landscape for commerce and cannabis. And I think in the interim, what that starts to look like are how can you start to differentiate your brand in a commerce space where, you know, people are relying more and more on, um, you know, shopping online with assets that look really uh, enticing to a consumer. How do you start to build that level of integration with a consumer flow? How does mobile start to play a bigger role in people's ordering habits? Where does the brick and mortar fall within that landscape? I mean, these are a lot of questions that we're asking ourselves as we look towards a broader expansion of our operations. And so I think the future of commerce is going to be like standard CPG. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the biggest, I think the biggest change is going to come and the biggest thing that is, as I said, going to be the largest variable that is inherent in this becomes federal legalization. And I don't know, I don't know how that's really going to translate. Um, but I think we're starting to get a better sense of how that would operationally affect us, but there's a lot that's in the mix. And, um, I'm just as curious as the next, but we stay really, really close with, you know, vendors and partners who are building, you know, non CPG focused and non, you know, mass consumer platforms like a Dutchie, their technology exists in a silo in certain ways, because most of these larger companies that you would expect like a Shopify or an Amazon, they're not in the space yet. And they're missing an opportunity because cannabis is very complicated. 
the mm-hmm. tech stack is very complicated. The API, by dynamic API integrations are very complicated. And because there are no traditional platforms, you know, in a mass market, like the Shopify's, a lot of these platforms may become the answer to a lot of questions that could have otherwise been solved from traditional platforms that we just don't have access to. So it's a non-answer in a lot of ways with more questions, but I think that's kind of where everybody's at. Nobody really knows, but we're going to kind of keep our head down and see what technology can bring to us. When you talk about the brick and mortar side of the business, how important will that consultative relationship with customers be once e-commerce opens up a little bit more? It's interesting. So I think, I think the future of brick and mortar and cannabis has not been established yet. Mm-hmm. I think right now, brick and mortar cannabis stores are an amalgam of a lot of things. They're being influenced by, um, you know, beer shops or apothecaries or pharmacies. I mean, we're a medical establishment on one hand, but we're also a recreational establishment on the other. And so we, we think a lot about what does the future of, of brick and mortar really look like. And I don't think the identif- identity of like, oh, that's a cannabis, like a cannabis store has its own identity yet. I don't think that really exists. Mm. I mean, we always think, is, it, is a cannabis store going to be more like a museum, a wine shop, a pharmacy, some combination of all, a combination of none? And I think brick and mortars are always going to have a place. And what I always, as a, as a wine drinker, when I'm buying anything, I want to understand the product that I'm getting, you know? Mm-hmm. So when I, I'll go to a wine shop to go learn about new wines that I don't know about. And then once I know it about, know about certain types of wines or blends or regions, then I'll go order those online. And so I think there's going to be a duality where cannabis can be available online at some point down the road, but are you still going to want to go talk to a trusted resource who knows about terpene profiles and cultivation and the terroir where cannabis is cultivated? I think there's going to be a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. And unlike kind of, you know, like craft beer industry, you know, big beer through the 80s and 90s was really everybody, you know, there wasn't craft beer didn't really exist aside from Sam. But now we've seen a little bit of this equilibrium shift where craft beer is everywhere. And I think you're going to get a little bit of both. And I think that's where brands will start to have a little bit more of a foothold with consumers, where I don't think a brick and mortar is ever going to die, period. Is there going to be less emphasis? Maybe. Is delivery going to help bridge that gap? Potentially. But I think there's also so much innovation in the space that consumers are going to want to talk to the source and have conversations about what they're buying. You had mentioned a little bit about how your previous experience really didn't help you set up for this new role, but what kind of similarities, if any, could you draw from you know consumer packaged goods, pharma, and the spirit industry, or kind of was it all just thrown out the window? Yeah, so it's it wasn't quite all thrown out the window. So I actually started my career in pharmaceuticals, um, mm. and this was probably, I want to say back in... 2011 2012 and this was when pharmaceuticals didn't allow digital advertising Mm. and you were pretty much restricted to direct mail and billboards and print and i actually went back to a lot of my old notebooks of when i was working on big ad campaigns what were we using as channels to promote you know products and i was not working on vanity drugs i was working on high level disease states um, you know, hep C, uh, HIV, I mean, products within each of those kind of verticals. And so 
that was really, really helpful. And then the other kind of part of my experience that was very informative was uh, working in spirits. I worked on Remy Martin's North American portfolio for about two years. Um, we've launched uh, uh, an Ode V spirit, which was an undistilled cognac. We worked on their entire cognac portfolio. And, you know, the 21 plus arena sets you in a certain category. And where I actually got a lot of, where I actually high, I go back to quite a bit is the B2B sales strategy from, you know, we now are a wholesaler with our um, cannabis infused seltzers with products in Mass and Maine. So I go back to that a lot. And then, you know, I worked on, ironically enough, Tampax, which is really an interesting project for me when I was a young guy working in New York was Tampax was working very much fully on CPG. And they were, I went through a lot of research with Tampax. I looked at a lot of their uh, in-store strategy from eye-level placements to package design and everything under the sun. And so there are bits and pieces that I have been able to kind of extract and apply. But, you know, at the end of the day, when they say, okay, go promote this product, it's not like, oh, well, you know, here's, you know, here's my audience segment, here's the media buy, and then here's the PR campaign. It's almost like, okay, well, you don't have any of those things. So how are you going to do this? Go figure it out. And, you know, that's something that we've continually, you know, we're constantly building on. Um, and there are a lot of case studies that I think in, you know, 20 years will be really interesting to say like, oh, wow, I can't believe we did that. Um, so I was fortunate that a lot of my previous experience in these different categories, there are bits and pieces that I pulled with me, but there was nothing, there's never been a, there's never been a guiding light per se that has like really said, this is how you do it. Here's the approach as there were in a lot of these other verticals that I had worked in where there were decades of experience that people had doing these kinds of campaigns. From a marketing perspective, what would you say has been your greatest achievement at Theory? Oh my gosh. I don't know. It's hard. It's really hard to say because I don't, we don't really, we're not really a company that we don't celebrate a ton of wins, nor do we really celebrate a lot of losses either. We just keep moving. Mm -hmm. um, I think incrementally there are, there are accomplishments that we see, whether it's, you know, um, ranking our website traffic, breaking, you know, new records is really exciting to us. Most of the benchmarks I set on our performance are internal. We are our own biggest competitor. Um, and we don't spend a ton of time looking at, you know, benchmarks from others. We set our own benchmarks and try to compete with improving our, our own self-improvement. I think probably one of the biggest wins though was coming back from COVID was tough. Um, and that was a big win, I think, for everybody who was coming from a place of uncertainty and coming back to this business that we all kind of weren't sure about how it was going to come back and what it would look like and feel like. Um, and I think a big victory for us was reopening our doors. And for me personally, too, because I oversee our customer service department um, and I use that as a marketing tool pretty much because anytime you have a one-on-one -on -one engagement with a consumer, it's an opportunity um, to help promote the brand and educate about the brand. And I can't tell you how many people were just literally reaching out to us and saying, thank you for being back open because we have really struggled without you. And mm. that's heavy. And um, when you have a, you know, two time Afghan vet 
from upstate New York who doesn't want to go buy cannabis on the black market and also doesn't want to go to the VA and get a bunch of pills and they rely on your edibles and you can't give them. And they reach out for two months saying, when are you guys going to open? Is there any way you can ship them? And to open the doors again, it's like, they came and they were like, thank you. Like my quality of life is back and we appreciate it. You know, that to me is a big achievement to just be back open and say, okay, well let's make it happen. And we're glad to, we're glad that you're, you're able to come enjoy this with us again. You know, that's both endearing and it had to be incredibly frustrating sort of having your hands tied for two months. Yeah. I mean, and we understood all of this, the good, all, all of the intent that is brought forward from the regulators in Massachusetts comes from a place of good intent and one that we very much understand the circumstance of. And so in a lot of ways you have to, you have to know that in the back of your mind that this isn't some malevolent throttling of your business, but it is frustrating because you also know that there is a service that people are looking for Mm. and yeah, it's frustrating and it, and it, it hurts. I mean, it hurts when you have to furlough employees and you have families that are relying on your business to provide their lifestyles. And so it was, it was no joke, the hardest time in our business. I mean, I don't think we've ever faced anything like it. And again, it didn't make us feel better that we weren't the only ones going through this. I mean, David, at one point we were, we had a team meeting and we said, what could we do? You know, how can we actually help? How can we help out in these times? And we did things like we help employees pay for groceries. We helped employees, um, you know, navigate some of the, the, the HR challenges of getting some of the federal funds that were coming out for individuals. I mean, hell, we produced hand sanitizer in our facility because our production rates were so low. Mm. And it's frustrating to want to be a very clear influence on these things and not being able to do so. Um, and again, we're fortunate to, to come back strong. And I think our operations came back a lot stronger as part of that too. Did you lose any product while you guys were shut down? I don't think we lost any product, but our productivity went down. Mm. Um, Because if you think about it, you have a production facility that is producing product for two stores that are high volume stores. And when those stores aren't high volume, you start to back up on your product and your inventory. And so your output declines. And so you know, we never, I don't think we ever had to like scrap any product or anything, but we had to throttle down on what our output was. And, you know, again, that's a, that's a, that wasn't just one stores being affected. This was the entire operations being affected. And we, you know, and and the impact of COVID was still felt going into this holiday season where, you know, with Omicron surging, it was, you know, our, our HR teams and our uh, compliance teams were working very closely with the, you know, spread of employee, you know, employees getting sick and tracking all of it. And, you know, all of it are, these are, these are business challenges that we were never really, nobody expects these kind of challenges. And we're already in a very complex arena for business operations. And this adds another level and, you know, real hats off to all of our teams who really helped navigate us through we actually back in february we don't we dedicated our internal employee newsletter our staff newsletter to you know our hr teams and our compliance teams who kept us afloat i mean and every single person who came down with covid was notified to the state notified to local authorities and you know i mean that's a ton of work on top of a day job and so again 
we're we're nimble enough that we can do those things and come out and also support each other. I mean, it's what we're we're all here for in this industry. Speaking of challenges, what is your outlook on New York opening up? You know, it's funny. Somebody asked me this earlier today, and we are stoked about it. Um, mm. And and ultimately, theory exists to promote legal cannabis mm. and the advocacy for legal cannabis. And so when you see uh, New York, Connecticut, New Jersey, Vermont, New Hampshire, all having conversations about legalization, I mean, this is a net positive for the industry as a whole. We're not going to get legalization in isolation with one state or two states or multiple states. This is going to take a lot of time to build up and have a lot of states working towards the same common goal. More safe legal access of regulated cannabis for all is a benefit, I think, to the industry. And it doesn't matter which state it is. I mean, I love Oklahoma's wild, the real wild west right now. And I love seeing that, too. Um, and ultimately, all of it is a net positive. I think where, where we see concerns or just challenges, I think, with that market is, one, it's the largest DMA next to California. Um, it will be the largest market. I think the federal government is watching very closely to see what happens with New York. New York has some of the most progressive legislation around social equity and equity clauses, which is a very beneficial thing. But there's also another challenge that comes with that, which is in New York now, the black market is probably the strongest it's ever been because it's not being as closely persecuted, I would say, which is a good and a bad thing, but here's the challenge. So if the cost per entry for legal cannabis is exorbitantly expensive, but the black market is super successful right now and operating under the radar, it is the proliferation of the black market is going to ultimately undercut the entrepreneurs from the social equity categories that are going to see this duality of, well, why would I pay so much money to enter into the legal market when the black market costs nothing with a higher profit margin? These are really big questions that I think we're kind of curious about how to see how New York kind of handles this. And then on the side too, you have New Jersey, which I think is probably a little bit further along in adult use. New Jersey can't be super excited about that either because that's going to undercut New Jersey sales as soon as you start putting in taxes, as soon as you start accommodating for inventory and supply. There's a, this is a very complex issue um, politically and I think socially, but ultimately for us, we're also watching from the sidelines and saying, go New York, we wish you the best. And again, every state that legalizes, I think is a very positive output because it's another access. It's more access to legal cannabis, um, which again, that's why theory's here. That's what we're all about. That's what we want. As you're watching from the sidelines, what what territories, particularly in the Northeast, do you think do you think might be a good fit for expansion? Mm. It depends on the week and the news cycle. I think for us, um, we're watching. We're not unlike any other cannabis company that has already exist in existence. Um, really, our evaluation is coming down to. The, some of the nuances with some of these markets. So, you know, New York, you can't be vertically integrated unless you're a medical company. We're not a medical company in New York, so we can't be vertically integrated. So making a determination of are we production or are we cultivation, are we manufacturing or are we retail? We don't really know. Um, and we're watching all of these markets start to emerge um, and trying to figure out where, where can we preserve the equity of the brand of theory without overscaling and, 
trying to run an unfeasible race into a new market that kind of creates sacrifice in our operations and our, you know, kind of our ethos as a brand. And I don't think we know all the answers yet. I think there are certain markets that become more interesting than others for us. Um, and, you know, I think there's so much merge, so many mergers and acquisitions at this point that it's very hard to, to see where theories, you know, ultimate destination becomes. Um, and, you know, we're, we're having no joke daily conversations about that future. And mm -hmm. I think there's, I think there are so many nuanced pieces that are moving at different speeds. Um, and ultimately we don't want to do anything that sacrifices this operation or overscales or goes to corporate or anything like that. And so I think it's not just like, go, go, go big, go as big and as fast as you can. Ours is more of, okay, well, how can we incrementally grow what we're doing and improve upon what we're doing? And again, as I said earlier, we're our biggest competitors ourselves. And so how can we challenge ourselves to be better at what we do and where are the areas where we can get better and what states are allow us, will allow us to be better at our operations. And um, it's a fun challenge and it's also frustrating at times too, as you can imagine. Oh, I'm, I'm sure. Uh, talking about the whirlwind of M&A activity, wanting to scale, wanting to make sure you don't overscale, making sure you don't go corporate because no one wants that death now. Um, <laughs> Are the plans to stay private and how do you grow sort of with grace without losing the soul? I don't know the answer to that question. I know a part of the answer. So I think part of it is, yeah, we have no, we have no plans right now to, to do anything other than remain private. Um, mm. That's not something that we're going to compromise on because being private, I think we're seeing now has been one of the best decisions that, we have held onto and fought for in markets from day one. And the irony of all of this is that we have been cash positive from 2018 until, or 2019 until now. That is so rare for companies of our size that are MSOs. When you look at the earnings reports for MSOs, these companies are, are literally posting absurd losses with mm -hmm. 10X evaluations. And we're quietly like, well, we're, we are, we've been positive cash flow positive for a long time. And we've been reinvesting that cash into growth. And so there's a part of our mentality that not every cannabis company can have. And so we're not going to get, we don't want to be distracted by these, these big cuts and these big swings by other companies. And the question of how do you kind of maintain that brand ethos and that kind of mentality in the market is really hard. There are going, there are always shortcuts that are in front of us that we choose not to take. And that's something that when we look at new markets, that's the biggest criteria for right now of the evaluation is, can we do what we're doing now there and have the same thing? Or are there going to be sacrifices that we inherently have to make to be successful? We ask ourselves that every day. And I think the way that the theory brand will grow will be with that as our North star into some of these markets. And that could change and be different depending on the market. Talking about growing the theory brand, what was the decision-making process to launch a new infused seltzer? <laughs> yeah, it was something that honestly we had been talking about for a long time. Um, 
And it was probably around the time that I actually started at Theory that that was a long-term idea. And what's funny about it is Massachusetts has this very long history in the beverage space mm. um, from no joke, the Boston tea party to Sam Adams defining what craft beer is to polar seltzer, making a national seltzer brand, um, you know, onto what I'm, I have a low dose when it's only two milligrams, but high five. And ultimately what we really were thinking about with high five was there is a huge barrier to entry with the cannabis space. Um, if you don't want to mess with edibles, because everybody, you know, we, we joke about the positioning of the high five brand. It's everybody's got a story about eating an edible, not feeling anything, eating another edible, and then all of a sudden just having a terrible time. I mean, everybody who uses cannabis has a story or knows somebody who has that story. Mm -hmm. So if you don't want to do an edible and then you don't want to smoke or vape or anything, you're pretty much there's, there's, you're on an island and there's not much, there's not a barrier for entry that, that will, that will, you can bring down to, to provide that access. And so high five became this concept where this fast acting emulsion process that we were using gives you more controllable effects. And then beverage consumption is, is, is a very critical area in terms of the social fabric of what we all know through alcohol. And how do you compete with alcohol? Alcohol inherently has a lot of issues with it from, you know, it can be abused, it, you know, drunk driving is a horrible thing. I mean, legal markets where cannabis is available, Yukon had a study at it, it was like 10%, there's a decline of 10% alcohol sales where legal cannabis is available. And so all of these kind of ideas were, were swirling with us. And ultimately, we wanted to make a product that brought in some of that audience who said, you know, I don't want to do cannabis cannabis is I've had bad experiences where I've had difficulty with cannabis. I don't know how to control and I don't want to drink alcohol. And so high five actually came at the right time. And what was amazing with high five is that we sold a million cans in nine months in Massachusetts alone in the first year, oh. which was, you know, again, another good, like, wow, but cautiously optimistic, like, is this going to work? the way we thought it is like, yeah, it's really working. And, you know, with high five came a new brand, which was something we hadn't done before. It included a B2B operational side and marketing side, which we also hadn't done before. And then it was also just this whole new category of product and education that we also had to carry too. And so, you know, I think the, the founders, Nick and Brandon always wanted to get into beverages. It was always a long-term goal and it took us a long time to get there, but the proof of concept was incredible. And, you know, even going through and figuring out the recipe formulation, I mean, and we are, we are meticulous and pedantic about product development. Um, and we went through rounds of flavoring. I mean, we, David, the, the, the length of email threads around carbonation is like, would make your head spin. Um, and so we, we really wanted to perfect this product and, um, we came in at the right time and the, the audience was ready for it and the market was ready for it. And it's been nothing but um, an exceptional ride for us since. What was it like bringing beverage manufacturing in house? <laughs> it's crazy. It was, it was insane. Um, you know, one of the things that, you know, we reinvested capital into building a, you know, a new facility for theory, a new production and manufacturing facility that we completed in November of last year. Um, and that was about a two year, year and a half long project. And as part of that was a state of the art canning line. Um, we are, you know, our former uh, chief production officer 
came up from the craft beer industry um, and understood very much the manufacturing side and also some of the R&D side of, of production of, you know, a seltzer. I mean, and when you cut down to it, manufacturing cans at scale is very challenging, but we're not talking about something that um, is, has, has a ton of shelf instability. I mean, we were talking literally about like water, CO2, cannabis, and, um, you know, uh, non-artificial uh, flavoring. All of this stuff was challenging and, you know, but once we had everything set up, I mean, it was very quick and we certainly had challenges and, you know, some of the biggest challenges were things like supply chain, because we were also doing this in the middle of COVID where aluminum costs skyrocketed, buying cans in mass was like, not in Massachusetts, but, you know, at scale per se, you had to buy, you know, million plus at a time, which required storage solutions. We are the only cannabis brand in the country that is direct printing cans in cannabis. Mm -hmm. So we were buying at a scale that was, you know, insurmountable. So, you know, all of these things were good business challenges to have. And then again, we were fortunate where a lot of the scaling took place around meeting demand. And that's kind of where we've, we've continued to, to chase. And, you know, and there are a lot of other great brands in the market now too, who are doing beverages. Um, and we have some really, really cool projects actually up our sleeve that expand the high five portfolio, even broader from just seltzers. Well, it's my understanding that the high five brand recently ran into a, a little bit of trouble with someone potentially stealing your IP. Somewhat. Yeah. You know, there was a there was another, you know, and I can't speak too much to something that has litigation, but you know, in short, somebody has was looking to start a dispensary called High Five, spelled H I G H, at five B E. Ours is H I uh, letter f- uh, number five, mm. and so you know, we put a lot of love and work into these brands that, you know, we want to make sure that we're protecting all the work we do put into it, and you know, somebody had done it, whether it was conscious or not always somewhat frustrating, but, Mm -hmm. you know, we've been on the other side of this too, where people are saying, you know, our brand is reaching, you know, into different areas of other people's businesses. And, you know, that's par for the course. I mean, when we, that's part of kind of the growth challenge that, you know, happens with us, but we'll do what we we need to to protect something that is so close to category. It's not like it's outside of category, which, you know, would be a different story, but because it's in category and not just in category, but here in Massachusetts, that's a challenge we have to address. Yeah, that's definitely a conflict. Um, but and you talk about those ridiculous length emails about carbonation and flavor profiles. But I mean, if you just think of conversations, uh, I enjoy the seltzer market, and I have those conversations with anybody else. I had one last night about new seltzers that I try, and it's just like, yeah, not as carbonated, a more of a full flavor. You know, it's that's what people talk about when they're trying to look for a new new product yeah it totally is i mean i last night was sitting with a coworker of mine one of my employees actually and we were trying another seltzer on the market and we were like you know this one's a little bit drier and we we're like why is it so dry what, what is that and we're like oh they've got five milligrams of sodium in that oh that's mm. really interesting like that's a that's a schweppes move schweppes also puts sodium in their seltzers which has a little bit of a psychological effect where you're like, Oh, because there's some salt, there's some, because there's some of that in there, you're like, Oh, does it make you thirstier? Or does it, it flatten some of the crispness of it? And, 
but you know, I mean, we're pedantic about that stuff. I mean, we really, we really look very, very hard into any of our R and D and, I mean, I will do stuff, David, as insane about when we look at seasonal flavors that we're going to do in summertime or whatever. I mean, I am looking at trends around flavor profiles and I'm a part of the team that gets to do some of the R&D around this stuff. And it's, I mean, that's, uh, that's the approach that we, we always want to take with these things. And, you know, once you put a product out, you can't take it back. You can't take it back once it goes out. Right. Mm-hmm. And so we prefer to take the time to make sure it is as perfect as we would want it as consumers. And ultimately everybody who's involved in that process, we all love cannabis. And so we're basically creating the products that we as consumers want to enjoy. And that's mm-hmm. the fun. No, that's a, uh, it's pretty unique to this industry where everyone else is really enjoying the R&D side of it as well. Where in other markets, you know, oh, that's just R&D over there. They figure it out and then it comes to us. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's honestly, that's part of the greatness of, of us being a very nimble organization and working like a startup where, you know, depending on my day, I mean, I could be working on brand strategy for a new chew that's coming out to working on coding the back end of our website, to doing SEO research, to, you know, looking at comms, to doing market forecasts and all of these things. And part of what I really love about it is we all work really closely in unison where it's not like, oh, this is my thing and you can't touch it and I'm going to keep this over here. And then this is your thing and you, you stay away from this. It's more of like, oh, I wonder what Thomas thinks. And honestly, even last night, I was working on, me and my graphic designer, Eric Bird, were working on this project of a new product that we're going to be launching. And, you know, I kind of, we kind of got to a place where I said, you know what, Eric, I think we've done a really good job, but, you know, I know there are about five, there are five people who have expressed interest in this product internally. Let's send them these layouts and let's get their feedback. Mm. And, you know, I sent it to uh, two two of our ops people, uh, one of our store managers, two cannabis consultants and one of our compliance people. And I just said, you guys give me your feedback on what you think about this. And does this make sense to you? Mm -hmm. And, you know, they came back and they're like, Oh, here are our ideas. And, you know, that's kind of part of the fun where that's not a weird thing for us to do. Um, Mm -hmm. We ask for people's opinions all the time because, you know, we think things are great, but we also are very self-conscious. Like are we, we had the conversation, are we being marketers right now? And do we like this because we're marketers? And is this a marketer tagline or is this actually something that will land with folks? And, you know, that kind of mentality with R&D and all this stuff is really great because I'll go to the facility, try a bunch of edibles of, you know, unmedicated edibles. I'll bring them back to my teams and say, what do you guys think? And every product that we launch at Theory goes through an internal employee review process where we will make test batches that will go to our employees. They will fill out questionnaires. We will take those questionnaires back and we will adjust formulation as needed based on feedback. And that's one of the beauties of that we can actually operate in this way. Mm-hmm. And that's not just in mass, that's in Maine as well. And, you know, it's really cool when, you know, I wish I had one, you know, our employees get these cans at retail that are blank aluminum kale uh, cans with like a single label that says, what the product is. And we purposely don't give them branded products to test because I don't want the brand to influence their perception of the product itself. Mm-hmm. And again, that kind of ability to work with your team is just, it's really, really great. And 
from 45 people from when I started to the 400 plus people we have today, we can still do that. And we've created systems that allow that kind of cross pollination to happen on the R&D side. Well, your passion is undeniable. Is the plan to stay in cannabis? Mine? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, we'll see. I mean, you know, I think I, I think I, I love what we've done with theory. Um, you know, I think part of the, the side for me that I really enjoy is that I, I read a lot of books about business and the development of business. And, um, you know, a, a book that I read recently was Shoe Dog by Phil Knight about the, you know, the Nike kind of how it grew and how it became what it was. And, you know, and I think I, I have so much passion for what we've done and I've learned so much. Our teams have learned so much. And, you know, I took a team originally it was just me doing all marketing. I have a team of eight or nine people now who work for me. That's incredible. And I think I'm going to continue to do this as long as I, you know, as long as it feels great. And I feel like we're producing the things that we want to produce. And it's really hard to, to not be super passionate when you're working at a company like this with a team like this. Um, there's, there's, there's something very, I think there's something very special about working in the industry today. And it's almost like you're working, you're working towards some much bigger thing and I don't know what that bigger thing is. I don't know if it's like national legalization. I don't really know what it is all about, but there's a very special vibe, I think, within our company these days where um, we're fortunate to be doing what we all do. And I think generally speaking, most people really love the work and it is work. Don't get me wrong. It's very hard. It's very stressful. We carry a ton on our shoulders, but it's also more rewarding than anything else that I could possibly think about doing today. So I will be in, you know, I'm, I'm super excited about where I've gone and I've grown from a director to a VP and, you know, where I go next will be really exciting, but I know it will probably, it will be with theory, um, you know, until, you know, until there's something better, but I don't even, I couldn't even, David, I couldn't even tell you what better would look like at this point, mm -hmm. because, you know, to be able to sit here, like holding a weed seltzer that my like 16 year old self would be, would never believe that I was doing. Um, so it's been a wild journey and I don't think the journey's over. I actually think we're, I actually think the theory is kind of, we're closing one chapter and we're moving into this next chapter. And this next chapter is going to be the most interesting yet. As you move into that next chapter, is there anything that we might have left out regarding theory or anything that you want to make sure that the Cannabis Equipment News audience knows about the company? You know, I think we're, you know, at the end of the day, we have, we've been incredibly fortunate for our success. I think our timing had worked out really great, but I also think good luck comes to those who are prepared to receive it. I think we've worked really, really hard to maintain a you know a certain integrity within the industry i think we've worked really hard as i mentioned earlier to not cut corners that are very much available to us to create short wins we're playing a we're playing a marathon here i mean theory wants to some point be a national brand mm -hmm. and we want to take the opportunity to be a very rare mso that is independent that is not working towards increasing stock prices and doesn't have a you know venture capital group behind us or private equity group um we want to continue to be a challenger brand and we're going to continue to challenge what this industry can be and what it's worth. And, you know, hopefully that's good for consumers. Hopefully that's good for us. And hopefully it's good for the industry as a whole. And so, 
that's really what we're all about. And, um, you know, hopefully that comes through for folks who encounter our brand, whether it's online or at a dispensary. Um, that's really what we're all about here. Well, it certainly came through on the interview, Thomas. I really do appreciate it. No, I appreciate you, David. Thanks for having me on. And um, these are great questions. And um, anytime, happy to be here. Before we get out of here, please make sure to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. You could also help us out a lot by leaving us a positive review on whatever platform you use. Finally, if you want to reach the podcast, you can reach me at david at cannabisequipmentnews.com. All right. For Thomas Wynn Stanley, I'm David Manti. This is the Cannabis Equipment News Podcast. We'll see you next week.